you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. We tend to take the institutions that serve our industry for granted. It almost seems that the hundreds of industry trade and standards bodies have always been there. So that's why this episode is so interesting. Today's guest is working on setting up the world's first cyber-loss classificatory body that from 1-1-2024 will serve the UK insurance and reinsurance industry and the wider UK society that it is supporting. We don't do this kind of thing very often, so my chat with James Burns, Head of Cyber Strategy at UK-headquartered Cyber and Specialist MGA CFC, is a unique chance to be in on the ground floor as an industry leader seeks to solve an emerging problem in the risk landscape. The cyber world and its insurers need to be able to classify the severity of the systemic loss events that it is facing if they are going to be able to continue to grow and fulfil the needs of customers and society as a whole. But just how do you go about creating a pan-industry, pan-societal body with a mission to work in the best interests of all? James' answers to this question are fascinating. His expertise and gravitas, mixed with optimism and idealism, are a highly effective and infectious combination. So, if you're feeling a little jaded and thinking that what insurance does is sometimes a little uninspiring, I can highly recommend a listen. This is an episode to remind you that our industry is absolutely essential for solving some of the biggest problems of our age. Enjoy the podcast. James, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. Really great to be here. This is really interesting because Normally, we take all the institutions we've got in insurance for granted. I don't know, you know, the Charter Institute of Insurance, Lloyds of London, the IUA, the CPCU, NAIC, all those things. We take them for granted that they're institutions, but we're actually going to be talking about being in on the ground floor as we try and create a new institution to help sort out the world of insurance. So why don't you explain what that is? An intriguing way of starting, but I think yeah. it is interesting because I've never been in a situation where we were able to design a new world. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's reflective of the new world and the new threats that cyber brings. But ultimately, that's a good framing, I think, for what we're trying to do with the, the Cyber Monitoring Centre. The core mission of this body is to bring transparency and clarity to a world which I think is otherwise quite chaotic and confusing. And incredibly opaque. And opaque and obfuscated. The world of major cyber events. Maybe if we just forget about insurance for one minute, major cyber events threaten society, the economy more now than at any point in history. And yet we still don't have a commonly agreed upon and understood system for classifying them objectively and consistency. And I think that's potentially a real problem because it makes these events more difficult to study and more difficult to understand. Any sort of new breaking cyber event that occurs, or if you look at any of the cyber events that have occurred over the course of the past few years, it's actually incredibly difficult for people to work out and realize what's actually going on. So the the way a lot of these events are reported, I think, lacks consistency and rigor in terms of sort of how they report and calculate the economic damages. And I think that makes it really quite difficult for people to be able to work out what the seriousness or the severity of any given event is relative to other events that have happened. So that comparative part is really difficult for people. And then you've just got some basic issues with how we define events. So all the time I'm seeing confusion and conflation between 
events, you know, real events that have actually occurred. And for example, the discovery of new vulnerabilities, two completely different things, with different implications, but they get confused and conflated and reported as if they're exactly the same thing. So vulnerability is, you know, it's just something that could be exploited. There's a hole in my net over here, but an event is when someone actually goes in the hole and starts nicking all your stuff. Exactly that. So so an event would be an attack that's been executed or a failure. It doesn't have to be malicious, might be a non-malicious failure, but something which has happened that's actually really impacting a large group of organizations. And as you say, vulnerability or the presence of vulnerabilities is just the potential for something that could be exploited. Two very different things and with different implications, both important, but they're talked about as if they're the same. So even on that basic level, we're not in a position where we're using the terminology that allows us to understand these phenomena in exactly the same way. And even the, the names of these events, so you look at the events that have occurred over the past few years, and you've got things with names such as proxy logon, proxy shell, petcha, not petcha, kasey. I think this instantly confuses 99.9% of people who aren't techies. That might sound like a trivial point, but it's not. I mean, you could be reasonably informed to say, but, but I don't really know the difference between WannaCry and NotPetya, other than I know that they're two sort of rock stars of the cyber insurance loss world. Yeah, exactly. But they were actually very different events in terms yeah. of what they cost and who they impacted and, and where they had impact. You take all those sort of things together and it's actually quite worrying because this, as I've mentioned, is, is one of the biggest threats facing us today, particularly facing businesses and organizations, and it's so poorly defined and so poorly understood. And you contrast that with the world of natural perils, the world of physical perils. So quake, flood, wind, and they all have easily understandable classification systems, which are actually designed specifically to allow people to convey the seriousness of any given event within those realms. I know the comparison's been made before with the world of hurricane, but you take something like the Sapphire Simpson hurricane scale. That was initially developed by Herbert Sapphire, the engineer who initially designed the first form of the scale. And he designed it exactly for the reason that there was no way of easily conveying or describing the damage that a hurricane might do that the people would understand. So you move to a simple classification system where you've got essentially a one through five scoring. And it's incredibly simple, but almost transformative in the way that it allows people to look at these things. And it sounds so obvious now. It sounds obvious that we should have a one through five scale for hurricanes, but that didn't exist prior to the early 1970s. Yeah. And if you want to know what the difference between a two and a three is in terms of what likely damage there is, you can go and look it up. Exactly. But the, the point is, when something really bad's happening, people know, and it's instant. People grasp the concept of that model. So I guess what we want with the Cyber Monitoring Centre is to create the equivalent for the digital world, because we need to have a way of conveying the seriousness and the severity of these cyber events as and when they're occurring. And I think that stands up as a use case in isolation, completely separate from the insurance market. So it's not just an insurance problem you're trying to solve? Absolutely not. I think there's a much broader societal issue here in how we look at and study and understand these events. Now, of course... There is a big benefit, I think, a big insurance benefit to this as well. And that's the fact that a commonly understood classification system can provide a mechanism for insurers to deal with systemic cyber risk. And that's something that the market's been crying yeah, out for. And I suppose, yes, we're sitting near Lloyds of London, I look over there and a realistic disaster scenario will have a category five hitting Miami. That's for someone's property portfolio. Everyone understands what a category five is because it's fully defined. And everyone knows where Miami is, and, and, and they've got all the geocodes for all the bits of property they've insured, and therefore they can have a realistic idea of what that kind of disaster would do to their portfolio and how their insurance would perform and all the other things. 
that's what you're going to be after. Yeah, exactly. So that could be the input to your realistic disaster scenario. Correct. So the hurricane scale in, in the example you've just mentioned hasn't been developed for insurance purposes or even to serve the insurance market. It's used as a mechanism yeah. that insurers can use to address systemic risk or to major turn events. It into a PML. It, it, exactly. And that's where we see the parallel with something like this. We think something like this, the cyber monitoring center and what they're going to be outputting, that mechanism can be used in a similar way. So how's it going to work? Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Eventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one, very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. Essentially, the body will be responsible for identifying two core metrics in relation to any given or any specific event in the UK. And and to start out, this is a a UK-based endeavor looking at events hitting the, the UK economy. Essentially, they'll be looking to establish two core metrics. And those metrics will be, one, how widespread any event is. So it's so what proportion of UK organizations are being impacted by an event. And secondly, what the economic impact, financial impact of that event is. So how much is this event costing those affected organizations? And what the body will be doing, it will be identifying those two core metrics and then combining them to assign a severity rating to any given event. So at the lower end for a relatively sort of low level, not very severe event impacting, say, less than 0.01% of UK organizations and costing less than £20 million in economic damages, that might be classed as a category one. At the other end of the scale, you might have a much bigger event impacting, say, more than 5% of organizations in the UK. It's a huge number, costing more than, say, £5 billion in economic damages. And that might be a a Category 5. That might be a Cat 5 cyber event. So that bit's actually relatively simple. The body's job will be to identify those metrics and and use them to create that severity rating. I think it's really important that it's simple for exactly the reason we just spoke about. It allows people to use terminology and discuss and understand these events in a way which is easy. The difficulty and the, the challenge for the body, for the centre, will be in accurately gauging those two metrics. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about, I've got my laptop in front of me right here doing this recording, but my laptop, I mean, it's structurally very similar, I'm sure, to Warren Buffett's laptop, but Warren Buffett's laptop's worth a lot more than mine. So yeah. presumably in that methodology, there's going to have to be a certain amount of approximation because obviously a bank's system is worth more than, I don't know, if I just sell stationery. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what the body will be doing in terms of how it will get to those metrics, 
it will need to ingest as much Because it won't data. be the actual real, obviously it can't be the real economic loss because no one's got time to actually go to all those 5% of every business in the UK and actually and ask them, what is your economic loss? Well, no, but maybe perhaps an element of that. So if you think about the centre as a black box, essentially, where it's got a load of data inputs, which it will be taking and then used to provide the outputs at the other end, it will need to ingest a broad spectrum of data inputs from a very diverse group of organisations and data feeds. So we're talking about inputs from organisations ranging from cybersecurity to government agencies to cloud platform companies to insurers to lots of other different types of organisation. And depending on the type of event, it will be able to utilise different feeds in different ways. So if you have an event which is, say, a, a global ransomware event, so we've got a situation where there's a threat actor that has somehow managed to compromise large swathes of the business population with a single attack. There's actually feeds that you can draw on. So blockchain platform feeds, for example, which are able to monitor in real time payments that are being made to the threat actor wallet that allows you to very quickly and in real time and very accurately deduce what that component of the economic cost would be for that event. So that's an example of one feed that would go in. If you take something like an event, say like a cloud outage scenario, Again, you can use tools and feeds relating to cloud monitoring platforms who are able to identify downtime scenarios in real time, number of impacted organizations, and that can be used to deduce an economic impact figure based on what it's seeing. But perhaps the core piece, and this is to your point around you won't have time to ask all of those organizations, part of the plan with this is that the center will be partnering with national and global polling companies. So it will be establishing in the UK for its initial sort of setup, be establishing with national polling companies to establish a subscriber base, a broad subscriber base of UK organisations, which is going to be both statistically significant and also statistically representative of UK right, PLC. Okay. So it's a bit like the way they compile stats for the, you know, who watched which programme on TV last night and which was the one that won the most audience. Exactly. Night. Not not dissimilar. So, so companies like, you know, Ipsos, YouGov, organisations right. okay. like that, Gallup so it's in the US. going to be survey-based and be able to sort of Absolutely. To survey and them. Exactly. And these organisations, it's their job to make sure that they're pulling information from subsets which are representative of a larger ecosystems. But again, that will be another feed. So any one of these feeds in isolation, you can use, but you might potentially question the robustness of. When you've got dozens, if not hundreds, and potentially at some stage, thousands of data feeds going in, all from different sources that corroborate each other, augment each other, and allow you to essentially synthesize and distill the bits that look like they're providing the best indicator of what's actually going on, that's going to be the job of the Cyber Monitoring Centre. It's not an easy job to do. It's going to be challenging, but it's definitely possible. And the methodology that they have to work with will be based on their ability to do that as effectively as they can. And from what I've read so far, you'd want to be putting out this number within 30 days of this attack happening? Yes. I suppose I'm thinking more analog terms. When I think about property sort of PCS numbers, you sort of say things that come out every 30 days and probably uh, there's a final number of 180 days, that kind mm. of thing. But it'd be 30 and done and then or presumably some of these events go on for a bit longer than that or... Some events do have longer tails than others, yeah. but it's actually, I think, really important that we do meet the target for that 30-day period for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, in terms of the non-insurance use case that I outlined earlier around sort of the societal benefit of greater understanding of what's happening in relation to any given event. 
I think there's much more value in that the earlier that the sensor is able to ascribe and define exactly what's happening. And then from an insurance perspective, we're not intending that this might be utilized as a reinsurance tool per se. So there are tools out there and initiatives that are being developed that can be used at, I guess, the back end for one of the better expressions. So you see sort of the cyber view perils type solution. So you're not expecting people to want to sort of base an ILW or trigger no, on this? Not, not necessarily. I mean, that could be a consequential result of it. But the way that the Monster Centre itself is set up, I think, lends itself much better to use in front-end insurance policies. And if that's the way that it's working, then again, it needs to be making these declarations in as quickly a time period as possible. Because what we're potentially talking about is using declarations made by the body, so a body that publicly declaring cat one, two, three, four, five cyber events and using that for triggers in insurance policies. And that means that they need to happen quickly. So you're right, there will be some events where tail is longer, but the methodology has been designed with that in mind and been designed with the aim of being able to accurately gauge economic impact as quickly as possible, even for events like that. Now, this still obviously still needs to go through road testing when the body goes live on one one, but absolutely. And we think that target is achievable. And the methodology, is that all going to be published at 1.1 as well? So that people can sort of kick the tyres of it and have a look at it? Yeah, so it won't be published at 1.1. So the way that this is working, the body will be operational on 1.1. It will go live, so with technical committee in place and methodology finalised. But actually, that's really just going to be the start of the journey. We're envisaging that first year for the Cyber Monitoring Centre to be an incubation period. So probably the whole of 2024 the body will be needing to road test its processes, its methodology in a live environment. And this is part of the challenge with something like this. And I think part of the challenge actually in, in terms of solving systemic risk more generally, there's a huge amount you can do in terms of talking and theorizing and postulating because it's such a complex subject matter. Our thinking has been, okay, we need to do as much of that as is necessary to get something up and running. And we want to have a robust methodology and processes in place. But actually, there's so many things, because it's the complex nature of what they're trying to do, there's so many things that are unforeseeable and won't be foreseeable. There's until no substitute the, for actually doing it, ex it. Exactly, exactly. So with that in mind, probably be negligent if we tried to get something up and running that was doing things which actually had serious consequences coming off the back of them straight away. So that first year, the plan is to be an incubation period where it road tests the methodology. How active do you think it might be in terms of backtesting? Go back through historical data and mm -hmm. sort of start with this methodology. Look at the past. How many events are we expecting a year? Obviously, I mean, some years are much worse than others. Yeah, but... absolutely. So we're anticipating somewhere between three and five events per year, something like that. And obviously, it depends where you draw your parameters. So one route we could have taken with this body was to make it quite binary. So actually, there's either been a major catastrophic event or there hasn't. And you can draw the parameters so that they only make a declaration when something really big has happened. Now, the problem with that is that it might never happen. So how are they actually going to test what they've put together actually it has to be sensitive enough works. to trigger something. Exactly. Right. So if you look at the proposed methodology, the actual, the, the cat one, two, three, they're actually relatively low level in terms of the affected population triggers and the, the financial impact triggers. So we should have enough live events happening that they're able to put the methodology in the technical committee to work so we can know what's working. As you've just mentioned, there's also a back catalogue, for want of a better expression, of, of events that can be used to test this, and that will happen once everything's in place as well. So it will get road tested, and actually it will be classifying live events in that first year. It just, A, won't be publicly declaring them in that first year, and B, the methodology won't be published until 
it's been road tested and optimized. So we're probably looking at 2025 when you've got public declarations being made with a road tested methodology that everyone can see. And we're confident that we've got a robust setup in place. This is, this is the start of the journey in that so respect. This is a kind of sector wide thing and also including the public sector, including the government. Yeah. How much buy-in have you got so far? Obviously, we've got loads of different agencies, and obviously, we've got the cloud companies, yeah. for want of a better description, you know, host companies, cloud companies, internet-based companies, internet security companies, the insurance industry, obviously, which you are representing. How much buy-in have you got so far from everybody on that? It's been incredibly well-received, and the initiative more generally both from insurance and non-insurance stakeholders. So for insurance stakeholders, I think it's a bit of an easy one because people recognize that we've got a challenge with systemic risk and we need a new way of thinking about this and trying to tackle it. And those conversations have been pushing on an open door. Everyone wants to know what we're doing, how do we get involved? And it's all been really positive. But actually, I've been impressed with how well-received it's been by non-insurance stakeholders, the types of organization you mentioned, government agencies, cybersecurity companies, other sort of technology style providers. But a big exposed entity like the NHS, for example, you can imagine, obviously they've been affected by events in the past. They probably want to get Yeah, involved. and I think this is the point. So I think every stakeholder sees the problem and it's back to that original issue I said. The fact that we've got such a prominent threat to UK PLC, society, economy, etc., but that it still feels like we're not joined up enough as a society in how we ascribe severity and seriousness to these events. So everyone gets that problem. I think everyone also gets that they're all coming at this issue from a slightly different angle with a different lens on. And I think that's been part of the problem with trying to solve a problem like this. And with cyber generally, actually, if you take the word cyber that we're using to describe the things we're talking about, it's a hugely broad expression used to describe a very disparate range of diverse challenges. And if you look at any one of the organizations that we're talking about, so say a cybersecurity company, they look at this through a very specific lens. They look at this through the lens of threats and vulnerabilities. Then you compare that with, say, a cloud computing provider. They look at this through the lens of critical system uptime. Government potentially looks at this through the lens of national security. Insurers look at this through the lens of insured losses or potential insured losses. And actually, that's part of the issue. And again, back to the need for something like the Cyber Monitoring Center. If we had a body that actually draws on all the ways in which these organizations look at this and tackle this from a different angle, but is actually so genuinely independent that it can actually try and look at things in a truly holistic way. And I hate using that word holistic because it's overused, but I think it's the right word here. Look at this in a really genuinely holistic way. I think people see the value in that. And I think that's where non-insurance stakeholders are interested and excited about participating as well. One of the things about that methodology that's interesting is if we're going to compare with the National Hurricane Center in the US, they just tell you how strong the wind's going to be and for how long it's going to be, and then categorize that. With this, you're wanting to use financial impact or economic impact as a way of measuring it. Why is it that way? Is it because it's so hard to measure otherwise? Yeah, I think that there are great parallels with natural perils and physical phenomena, but obviously the, the parallels do have limits insofar as Natural perils are much easier in many ways. With hurricanes, it's physics. Yeah, you've got observable physical metrics which are measurable, right? Yeah. And we don't you have can that. see how low the pressure was at the centre of the exactly. Yeah. You can see it, feel it, measure it easily. That's much harder in the in the non physical world. So I think economic impact combined with that scale, scale and impact is the truest proxy. I think we've got for severity in the non physical world, and pretty much every single person that I've spoken to agrees. The other challenge you've got with cyber is that there's such a diverse range of threats. You know, the different types of event are numerous in number. 
and potentially more complex than, say, the wind blowing with a hurricane or quake magnitude. So that makes things more difficult again. And in terms of trying to assess the different severity levels of different types of event, in order to do it in a way that is common to everyone's understanding, you need to find a proxy that does that and economic impact does that. So you're right, this is slightly different to what the hurricane center might be doing or how the Richter scale works a quake. But I guess ultimately how hard the wind blows and how heavy the earth shakes is also representative of severity as a proxy for severity. And, and this is basically trying to do the same thing. And at least money is a universal language. Exactly. Everyone understands it. Obviously, cyber has got itself into different controversies over cyber war recently on the insurance side. Is this anything where this monitoring centre is going to be asked to stray into to become an arbiter of this kind of thing? So, yeah, this event is an act of war or not? Or would it just sort of keep itself really clean and just say, this is an event and I don't want to tell you what the cause is? Yeah, categorically not <laughs> on, the, on the war front. Not a can of worms you want to open? No, absolutely not. In a way, this is exactly what we're trying to get away from, I think. A lot of the difficulty that we have in the cyber world comes from this issue of attribution. And the fact that, again, we're dealing with non-physical perils, non-physical phenomenon, which means that we lack some of the, the reference points that traditional lines of insurance and perils have. So in the physical world, you tend to have clearly identifiable timeframes and geographic locations and sources of insured loss. With cyber, all that's way more difficult. And I think what we've seen with debates around the war exclusion and updates to war exclusions and cyber war exclusions, and that's panned out in many different directions now, but one of the core issues at the nub of those debates was that issue of attribution. And the fact that attribution is A, very difficult to do and to do quickly, and B, when it does happen, can often have a political bent to it, which means it's not necessarily as an objective a trigger as you'd like in an insurance contract. So the cyber monitoring centre is not going to be concerned with that. The cyber monitoring centre will be concerned with working out what has happened and how serious it is, not who did it and why. Okay, so it's much more sort of how much damage has happened. I don't really care who started it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's right as well. I mean, you, you look at something like Not Petcha, and this speaks to the issue with attribution. It took something like eight months for the White House to publicly attribute Not Petcha to the Russian state, and obviously the Russian state vehemently denies it. And you end up in the realms of subjectivity with something like that. And I don't think that's a good mechanism for triggering coverage. Yeah, This is for something to be as objective as it possibly can. Exactly. Because that, that right. objectivity piece is, is really important. And I yeah. think in some ways, you know, I mentioned earlier on that this is really an insurance place. I mean, we can use in front-end insurance policies, but that objectivity in terms of the trigger can have real potential benefits for the cyber reinsurance markets. I think a lot of the challenges that reinsurers have is around the lack of clarity with triggers and the lack of objectivity in triggers for cyber events. But introducing a trigger which is based on a declaration made by a third party body makes things much cleaner and much more objective and yeah. that should make things the, easier. Well, they're really still at the stage where they want to be able to say that they can reinsure X amount and they want to know where that exposure is going to likely kick in and that they're not going to suddenly become insolvent because of an event and they want to know how much they can really do. Yeah. So this is being utterly objective is going to help them get more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And back to the hurricane analogy, property cat reinsurers and even beyond reinsurance, you look at the cat bond world and the capital markets world, they must take great comfort from the fact that the triggers in their contracts are utterly objective. They're linked to very definable 
objective mechanisms such as declarations made and categorizations assigned. And I think the lack of that in cyber has been a big problem in sort of opening up the market in relation to the reinsurance world and then by definition the insurance world as well. This has been a huge amount of your time and big investment in your time. So was it CFC that is doing this, that's really driving this? This is your baby really, isn't it? Why are you doing it? I mean, is, is this for something because you're serving a really broad need or is there some kind of edge you're going to get out of it? We don't really want it to be seen as our baby, as, as odd as that sounds, Mark. And but you've spent a huge amount of your time yes, last year doing this. Yeah, we, we have. And the answer to why is it's honestly the best solution that we can see for the problem that we think is at hand. And we spent a huge amount of time before this came to fruition, a huge amount of time thinking about the issue around systemic risk in the cyber market and all of the sub-issues that come off it. Things like war, war exclusions, limited reinsurance capacity, overcomplication of wordings. These all stem from the same sort of problem. It's that ability to address systemic risk. And for us, for an entity like CFC, not only are we one of the largest writers of the class in absolute terms, cyber accounts for more than 50% of our premium as a business, which actually puts us in a pretty unique position in the market. So that means that we have a heavily vested interest in making sure that this market functions as it should do. So it's not totally altruistic, but it's not an edge that we're trying to get in any way, shape because or form. Because an MGA, you're a great convener of the market because you're convening all the paper providers behind you, or most of them, and also you're convening all the brokers in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, that, that MGA angle lends itself really well to projects like this. The fact that we do have a lot of partners, both on the broking side, but also on the capacity side. But actually, this goes beyond that, I think, as well. We see this as a real challenge that the market needs to get to grips with. And we see ourselves as acting as a catalyst to try and push something forward here. And like I said, back to that point around having cyber being such a strategically important class to our business. You know, I'm very lucky because I can get board level buy-in and resource allocated to pursue projects like this because we know it's going to be important for a market that is going to mean so much to us in the long term and the sustainability of a market that's really important. So that enables to, to catalyze and try and push momentum with something like this. But absolutely, the fact that we touch so many relationships in the market as well means that we're able to corral, I think, around common interests. And, and do you think you, you'll be able to get big swathes of the insurance industry to come in behind you to support it? Yeah, I think so. So the conversations, as I mentioned before, that we've been having today are all incredibly positive. Brokers, phenomenally interested in something like this and want to know how they can support capacity partners, phenomenally interested. Other insurers that, as of yet, we may not even have had a relationship with. I've had reaching out to me, reinsurance companies, capital providers, everyone's interested because I think everyone sees the potential with a class like cyber. And I think everyone sees the benefit to being able to get over this systemic risk hurdle. So yeah, it's been really, really well received and we have some great conversations with people. How's it going to be funded? I presume some sort of levy or membership or that yeah. kind of thing. So the body's been set up as a CLG, so a company limited by guarantee, which is essentially the same sort of corporate structure that not-for-profits and, and charities use. So they have a membership base, but the body itself has sort of a legal identity, which is distinct from that membership base. So at the moment, CFC is the sole member, and we're actually funding this on our own at the moment. Back to that point around us just trying to catalyze something that moves forward and gets going. As this becomes more fully formed as a proposition, so as we're moving into next year, and actually we move through that incubation period, and we think we're at a place where something's good enough to stand on its own, 
absolutely our plan for this and what we'd like to see happen is that membership base gets opened up to as many sort of insurance and non-insurance market participants as want to participate and actually the more people you open this up to obviously the more cost effective it comes for each individual member to help fund the operations but obviously i think the more willingness it shows on behalf of the market to see something like this succeed so that would be the i think the desire some sort of benefit a bit i don't know you pay your PCS dues and then you submit, obviously you go through the effort of submitting your data to PCS, you probably get to see PCS numbers before everyone else, that kind of thing. Yeah. Would you get that kind of benefit, that kind of insight you'll be able to look deeper in if you remember? Potentially, not sure yet. We have to be a bit careful about when we sort of looked at this from a legal perspective. You can't have any competitive... Exactly, competition law, um, no. regulatory implications. So yeah, we have to be a bit careful on, on that front. But actually, again, the conversations we've had... I think people just want to be involved in something like this and it's for the good of the market and it's amazing. People get that and they want to help it. Yeah. So anyone who's got a big enough stake in this market will think, right, it's worth uh, making sure this works. That's what we're hearing, yeah. And what about governance? And obviously it must be important that it's got its own constitution and its own way of governing itself and replacing its members and that kind of thing and obviously changing its methodologies and all these other things it's going to have to do. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, that CLG setup lends itself quite well to what we're doing. And the idea at the moment, in terms of what we've got, CFC is a sole member, but we've actually been working on this in collaboration with two key partners. So the Waitman's law firm, who've been sort of advising yeah. as legal counsel from the outset, and a company called Qualrisk, who are a specialist consultancy who sort of specialise in, in setting up industry-based consortium. They've really been instrumental in the project managing the initiation of this. So once this thing goes live, we will have staff on a semi-permanent basis that are staffing the, the site monitoring centre from an operational standpoint. So there's, there's an analytics job to do there. It's going to have to have an analytics function in terms of you know drawing in all those data feeds and, and making sure that that's being looked at properly. And then obviously an operational oversight as well. And then the technical committee sort of sits separate to that. So, so their job is going to be solely to be convened when these events are occurring and ensuring that they're following the methodology processes that have been set and that are going to be set in a very transparent way. So from a governance perspective, the, the technical committee will essentially be answerable to themselves and to the methodologies that's been set out um, and whatever articles of associations have been set out as well as part of that. But of course, there will be, have to be a, a regular cadence by which the methodology is reviewed and you know considered to be continually updated and improved and that will be the purview of the technical committee who just to clarify will be drawn from non-insurance market backgrounds so we're looking at a cross-section of specialists from realms such as academia public policy cybersecurity, a couple of other areas but who won't come from the insurance market because there's the potential for a, a conflict there. So will it become their main occupation? No, I don't, I don't think so because, again, back to what we touched on earlier, by definition, the number of events that occur on an annual basis might not be that. You might have a clean year and nothing it, it, to do. Exactly. So there'll be some semi-permanent resource. The technical committee itself will be meeting with as regular a cadence as, as required, depending on the, the frequency of events that we see in a specific year plus some other core regular meetings, such as discussing the methodology and updates to it and things like that. This is UK only at the moment. Do you think there's there any interest sort of internationally? Obviously, you operate globally, so... Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, sort of interest from stakeholders, huge amount of that has come from the US already. So obviously, in many ways, the US market is more advanced, certainly in terms of penetration of the product and 
percentage of, of organizations buying and obviously premium written when it comes to cyber. So they've been massively interested in this. Um, and again, insurance and non-insurance market stakeholders. I don't see why what we're creating here couldn't be replicated overseas. And I think that actually would be a, a really great end goal. If we're able to create a model that works for the UK and that could then be used to inform how you know the US, Canada, Australia, other sort of big territories that see this as a serious issue. It could issue. be something you could pull something and you know it could work in a multinational basis. Yeah, absolutely. And you could see, I mean, there's so many different directions this thing could actually take. You could see it being a model which is copied. You could see it operating on an international basis, you know, similar to other types of... It could be the World Bank of Cyber. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so something like that. And I'd, we're trying not to get too far ahead of ourselves because there's important problems to solve in the nearer term to, to push this thing forward and make sure it succeeds. But yeah, a long-term sort of Nirvana vision could be that this is something which really helps solve a big issue for lots of different countries around the world, which would be really, really cool. What about accountability, the ultimate question? How can you, you know, absolutely guarantee its independence and who would it ultimately be accountable to if it is something stupid? I think, as I mentioned, that the body's got to be accountable to itself and the technical committee especially has to be accountable to itself and to the methodology and to, to the processes that are sort of codified in, in the way the body works. But also it doesn't create a big liability problem if someone's saying, you know what, I can't go on this committee because I can't get the DNO cover for it or do I need DNO cover? Is it a bit like a rating agency that gets way more on because it's sort of a media exemption to the thing, so it's only our opinion? Yeah, so now it's probably a combination of those two things. Yeah. So. I think there have been insurances purchased already for it, but ultimately, and you're thinking slightly longer term again, we could see a world in which actually, you know, government says, we see this as a really important body that's doing really important things. We want to take a bit more control of this and we'd be absolutely fine with that, be it government or quasi-governmental organisations, because we've helped kick it into being and now it's serving the purpose that it needs to serve. And back to that point around not being too bothered that it's seen as a CFC or it even insurance market. take on a life thing. of its own. Exactly, exactly. And we kind of just want to keep pushing it so it gains momentum and, and hopefully that's where it gets to. So how do people get involved? Insurance or otherwise, who, anyone who's listening to this podcast now, how do they get involved? Yeah, reach out to me. Like I said, I've, I've had a huge amount of outreach and I've done lots and lots of calls, meetings, Teams calls with people over the course of the past couple of months as sort of news about this has become more widespread. And absolutely happy to continue doing that. So yeah, please feel free to pop me a line if you want to hear more. We'll put discuss some, more we'll about put some contacts absolutely. Um, at the bottom of the, yeah. in the notes in the podcast. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, th this is really, really interesting. It sounds like this could be something that becomes a public body that when it declares something, then the newspapers run stories saying, you know, there has been a Cat 3 cyber event. Yeah, that's really the way we'd like to see it going, you know. And as I said at the start, I think there's a huge use case for this and a huge amount of value in this operating in isolation in terms of exactly things like that, you know, how we report on these events. Also, I suppose it, the way it could then become a body that then produces research, again, which is consumed. That could be a huge angle. In terms of what they're going to be doing, I don't think there's any other body in the world doing it like they're going to be doing it. So in terms of the data feeds they'll be ingesting, the way they'll be analysing those feeds, you know, the people that are going to be sitting on the technical committee and the, the range of experience and expertise they've got, they're going to build up a huge amount of valuable data analytics very, very quickly. And I think in terms of the scientific rigour they'll be applying to this whole subject matter, that could potentially be something completely new, which gives rise to use cases that we haven't even thought of yet. So yeah, that bit's really exciting as well. 
so we'll watch this space, watch next year, this gestation period next year as things start to kick off. And obviously we in the media will be following this with a huge amount of attention. Yeah. And thanks very much for coming on the show, James. I mean, if this all flies, it'll be Sir James by the next, <laughs> next time I speak to you. Not sure about that, but um, no, thank you, Mark. It's been a real honour. Thanks very much. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>